0: Welcome to part two of my discussion with our own Ron Hauergen about his new book, Clear, Reforming Healthcare to Save the U.S. Economy. Last week, we talked at length about some of the problems with our healthcare system that are pushing us to the brink of an economic crisis. This week, we're talking about how to fix those problems. Let's talk about uh, reform goals. Um, one thing uh, I'm going to throw this uh, throw this one at, in at you is uh, something that we've already tried to do, even though it's not on our, our, our show notes today. But it's something we've talked about, especially in recent weeks, given current litigation surrounding it. And that is preventative medicine. Um, and that was something it, 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 we've got, we, obviously we've had it around for a while. It, a lot of the services, what we've defined as necessary services, were made free under the Affordable Care Act. Having those free services for people with their insurance, how much does that help reduce costs in the long run by having HIV screening or mammograms or some of these other things that were started to be required under the Affordable Care Act?
1: So, there have been a lot of studies that show that as you remove a financial barrier from, um, uh, from, Things that you want to have happen for behaviors you want to see like women getting screening mammograms, like children getting their immunizations, like men getting colonoscopies, etc. As you remove the financial barrier, the the number of people that get those services done go up and we know that those are long term cost saving measures. You know, I mean, a perfect example is screening mammograms. We know that the earlier that we catch a cancer, the less expensive it is, the more survivable the scenario is That's those are good investments. They have, they have a return on investment. Um, and so those things, yeah, they do help. And I, and I, I firmly believe that we should make those things quote unquote free because they're really not free. What we're doing is we're investing in somebody's health mm-hmm. status and we know it'll have payoff in the, in the future. Um, and that's great. And those things have helped,
0: you know, a, a non-medical example might be, you know, you're getting your oil changed in your car. It may cost yeah. $70 to do it every six months or so, depending on what kind of car you have. And, uh, but it prevents you from having to replace your engine later on when the oil dries up and the engine freezes because it can't function properly. Um, one right. of those is vastly right. more expensive than the other.
1: Yeah. Now, and, and on the flip side of that, um in some respects, some economists will say what you want to do then though is you want to make it more expensive for behaviors that you don't want to see. You know, hmm. one of the problems with healthcare in this country is the consumer is not the purchaser to a large degree. You know, you're you're consuming goods and services in healthcare, but you really aren't purchasing them. Somebody else is, your insurance is. And we've actually seen a huge shift in this country on the amount of healthcare dollars that are paid out of pocket by the actual consumer compared to somebody else. Um, If we go back and look at 1970, okay, almost a third of all the healthcare expenses were out of pocket. Remember, that's back in the days with the old, what they called the indemnity, eighty twenties You mm-hmm. pay 20%, you know, plus whatever. So back in 1970, out-of-pocket was 32.7% of all the expenses came right out of your pocket when you consume the service. Today, it's 10%.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We're, we're paying much less sort of out-of-pocket. Now, what went up? Well, public health insurance, meaning Medicare and Medicaid, things paid for by the government, in 1970, only 22% of all the expenses were under a public health insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, something like that, CHIP, etc. Today, it's 42%. So when people talk about, "Oh my God, you know, we can't have Medicare for all," hey, we're halfway there. Right. You know, we're yeah. approaching 50% of all the dollars already under some sort of government program, and that trend continues to go up. That's also one of the problems: is people are don't face the economic um, realities of their decisions. Um, and so, if, you know, we go back to some of these lifestyle things like obesity, et cetera, um, smoking, you know, and what that does to COPD. Well, there really isn't a large economic consequence by doing that, um, you know, and, mm-hmm. and what that means from a healthcare expense perspective.
0: You've identified um, several, I would say, are worthy worthy goals for reform uh, in the healthcare system in, in your new book, "Clear: Reforming Healthcare to Save the U.S. Economy." And, and the three that I've identified for this particular interview today: uh, reducing costs, increasing coverage, and maintaining quality and access. And of course, we've talked about before the uh, the healthcare equation that you have, which is that every the three desirable outcomes are low cost. Uh, high access, you know, lots of access, you can get it easily, and high quality uh, healthcare. And we've you, you've talked about before that we really can't have all three, you can have two. And we would say that we'd have quality and access in this country, but not uh, low cost. So how do we reduce cost while increasing the access and maintaining the current quality?
1: Well, and the, the nice part about when you look at this balancing act of, of you know, cost, quality, access, you know, is that one of them makes the other one really much easier and what you've got to do is try to make sure you don't do damage to the third one. So from a quality perspective, I will argue this with anybody who wants to, we have incredible quality of healthcare in this country, just amazing quality of care if you can get access to it, okay? Mm -hmm. So I don't know of anybody who is in this country and goes, oh my goodness, I have cancer well, I better get to Turkey or Greece. There's where I could you know, You wouldn't go to any other country for care. We have the most advances in technology, medication. You know, we have ready access to advanced treatments. I mean, nobody in this country says, boy, if only there were an MRI machine somewhere within two hours of where I live. For the vast majority of the population, it's like, which one am I going to pick? You know, that's within 10 minutes of where I live. So we have quality of care okay we have incredible quality of care and there's a lot of studies that show it when you look at cancer survival rates and cardiovascular event survival rates etc so what you want to do is maintain that we don't want to do damage to it we got to make sure that whatever we do we don't we don't reduce that now you get to the other one you know sort of reducing cost increasing access well the more you reduce cost the easier it is to provide access if we start to save a lot of money on the cost of care then it becomes very easy to start covering the people who fall through the gaps, that 10 percent. If you don't reduce cost of care, you're never going to be able to cover those people. Mm -hmm. And so really that game is how do we look at the cost drivers, get them down, use some of that savings to pay for or provide programs that provide insurance or coverage for the people who don't have it. We'll probably never get to zero, um, but we've never gotten to zero unemployment. We've never gotten to zero to any of the other stuff anyway. Um, But get that number really as low as we can possibly get it without sacrificing quality of care. Um, That's where the trick is. Um, And that's why I think when you think about it, the whole focus has to be on cost reduction and then doing those cost reductions in a way that don't affect quality.
0: As you mentioned, um, since the patient is not really the purchaser in most instances because of, of how much the patient responsibility has fallen, um, how much of it is patient responsibility to help, you know, do that, to, to help lower some of the costs? You know, we talked about lifestyles earlier. And, and the reason I ask is recent um, surveys from the Kaiser Family Foundation have shown that 81% of people who have private insurance generally think of it as excellent or good. And if they're thinking of it as excellent or good, Mm -hmm. there may not be a motivation to either change their lifestyle or change the way we do healthcare in this country. So how much of that is on the patient as opposed to insurers and physicians or the government?
1: Well, and I think that's where we've really missed the boat um, with health insurance is getting the patient actively involved with it. And the funny part is, and I, I get that health insurance is different because we're dealing with healthcare. care, um, is we're comfortable with it in almost every other phase of what we think of as insurance, okay? Auto insurance, we're completely comfortable with the fact that if I get five mm-hmm. speeding tickets and a DUI, my rates are going to go through the roof. Yeah. Why? Because I'm a risky driver. I'm going to cost more money. We're comfortable with the fact that if you have, you know, smoke detectors in your house, you get a break on your homeowner's insurance. Mm -hmm. You know, we understand that life insurance is based on, you know, you getting a cholesterol test and and answering questions about your overall health. But we don't want to get the consumer actively involved in their own health insurance. Now, I'll be the first to admit, I don't think having penalties like what we do with auto insurance is the way to solve the health insurance problem. Because some of these things, are not choices, okay? You know, people don't choose to get rheumatic arthritis. Sure. People don't yeah. choose to get MS, okay?
0: And but we tried that with the individual you can mandate. take
1: example, yeah, and it just didn't work. Yep. But you can take cues from homeowner's insurance and how some of the auto insurance companies do it now, these good driver discounts, okay? Mm-hmm. Or homeowner's insurance with, with um, smoke detectors. What if we said to people, look, okay, we've got a third a third of the country is clinically obese, okay, 33%, um, which is twice what any other comparable country is. What if we said, all right, look, if you're clinically obese and you work with your doctor on a physician approved plan, whether that's medication, if you're morbidly obese, maybe gastric bypass surgery, it may be diet and exercise, whatever that is, if you're working with your doctor and actively trying to control that and your doctor will certify every six months, okay, that you came in and you listened to you know counseling or you're taking this drug or whatever your individual you know, program is. We'll give you a break on your health insurance and we'll do it in the form of a rebate to you, directly to you. I wonder what would happen if um, we said to somebody, look, you start helping us with your weight. You get actively involved. Here's a $500 check every six months. There's an incentive. It's not any different than these good driver discounts or accident-free forgiveness, all that stuff, okay? We can get patients more actively involved. You can do it with things that aren't just lifestyle choices, okay? Um, You have a certain condition, okay? One of the things we know that helps that condition is adherence to, you know, to medication schedules. You need to take your drugs, Mm -hmm. okay? You need to take them every day. Okay, or you need to do this, or you need to do that. Again, if we can certify that you're doing that, here's a rebate. right? And, and give and financial incentives for people to do the things we want them to do. Right now, we just don't have any real incentive to exhibit those behaviors, and we've seen that those incentives can work in a lot of other areas.
0: Mm-hmm. We're going to take a quick break and talk briefly about what is coming up next week on the Flatlining Podcast.
2: I am pro-life, pro-second amendment, anti-woke, anti-China, and I am pro-freedom in every possible way. But, as you may have guessed, I am laser focused on one thing, the economy. In fact, I am the one candidate that has a plan for solving our problem.
0: Midwest businessman Perry Johnson has been campaigning nonstop in Iowa. After getting third place in the CPAC straw poll, he's doing his best to make a name for himself and his platform, Two Cents to Save America.
2: It's a very simple concept. Instead of having the government spend every single penny in their budget, every single year, going out of their way to throw your money away, I say we do just the opposite. I'm gonna do what I did in every company. We freeze the budget and we cut two cents out of every dollar of discretionary spending every year.
0: On the next edition of Pulse Check on the Candidates, I'll tell you what that means for Medicare, Medicaid, and the rest of our healthcare system. I'll also tell you which federal department he wants to eliminate completely. Make sure you're subscribed to the Flatlining Podcast so you don't miss this next edition of Pulse Check on the Candidates. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also have every episode and our weekly e-newsletter delivered to your inbox by signing up for free at flatlining.net. Back now with Ron Hauergen talking about his new book, Clear, Reforming Healthcare to Save the U.S. Economy. Let's talk about a, a few other kind of we don't have to call them rapid fire, but a few other things that you mentioned in the book that I, I want you to define and kind of explain uh, as, as we talk about your new book, which, by the way, uh, clear reforming healthcare to save the U.S. economy is available for purchase. You can find links to it in the show notes, or if you go to flatlining.net, click the books button and you can find uh, both of Ron's books there as well. Um, what is a defined benefit?
1: A defined benefit would change how we currently provide for health care. So currently, we work on a scenario where, let's say, you have to pay a fixed amount, a co You pay $20 for every visit. The insurance company pays whatever the cost of the visit is after that. Or you pay a coinsurance. I have to pay 10% of the cost of my surgery. Okay, mm-hmm. So you're paying a, either a fixed or a portion amount. A defined benefit is, it says, no, no, I'm going to pay as your employer, your insurance, $500 for every MRI you need. Everything beyond that, you have to pay for. You can find somebody to do the MRI for $500. It's free. If you want to go to the, you know, the university setting and it's $1,000, you have to pay the extra $500. The, the best way to think of it is, for most of us who have coverage for eyeglasses um, through their employer, that's a defined benefit. Mm-hmm. Your policy probably says, I'll pay X dollars towards lenses yep. and I'll pay X dollars towards frames. So, you know, you walk in with, I get a hundred dollars towards frames. And if you really want that $300 set of frames, okay. You pay the extra 200 bucks, right? If you really want the, you know, the scratch resistant, you know, uh, no line bifocal lenses mm-hmm. that are more expensive, you pay the difference. Yep. That's what a defined benefit is. We're saying, instead of saying we'll pay whatever's left over after our dollar amount or percentage, no, no, here's what your voucher is, so to speak for that, um, that type of care and everything above and beyond that, you have to pay.
0: Something like that would require compliance then with the price transparency laws that we already have in place.
1: Absolutely. What you would and the reason why some people push for defined benefits and it doesn't work for every bit of care. You, it'd be almost impossible to do for cancer care for the drug because you know you don't really pick what drug. Um, but for a lot of care, office visits, radiology, certain surgeries, et cetera, it would work. And a lot of the reason why economists sort of like to think about the defined benefit is the consumer starts to become a shopper. And you'd have to have price transparency. You'd have to have that kind of scenario where somebody could call up and say, Hey, uh, you know, acne radiology, my, my doctor's ordered an MRI of the back. And how much are you going to charge for that? Well, our charge for that is a thousand dollars. Ooh, well, my benefits 500. So let me call you back and you call the second one and you say, how much would you charge for that? Go, well, we're at seven fifty. Okay. Because what happens is when the first center starts losing all these scans, they're going to drop their price. Um, and now you have the producer of the product, if you will, starting to compete on price, which we don't have right now.
0: And in addition to that, it brings the patient into the front of, of, of being the actual purchaser of the care as yep. well. Uh, the next one, um, what is tort reform?
1: Tort reform is getting at the fact that um, right now there's a lot of money, home runs that can be made um, by suing physicians for malpractice. And and definitely a lot of those cases, you know, there is malpractice, okay? But when you start to get into punitive damages and damages beyond compensatory damages, um, there are a lot of plaintiff's attorneys that realize you could get some home runs there. And that drives up the cost of health care. One, because it drives up the cost of malpractice insurance the physicians have to pay, but two, it creates defensive medicine. Doctors who order things or do things to create more defense. Boy, I better get that extra MRI, because if if something goes south here, I don't want somebody asking me in hindsight, why didn't you get that MRI? Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm gonna practice defensively. There have been different studies on how much extra cost is involved with this. Conservatively, the studies think it's somewhere around $60 billion a year of purely unnecessary healthcare that gets done purely to create a defense from being sued for malpractice 60 billion there have been other studies that have it at two or three times that number mm-hmm. so it's a significant amount of money in in and tort reform um, which again my opinion would be taking these things out of normal jury cases having them you know um, handled by let's say a three doctor panel almost like an appellant court and limiting the amount of punitive damages. So there isn't a home run there. You can't win a million dollars because something bad happened um, would eliminate an awful lot of this problem.
0: Talk to me about uh, value-based, population-based healthcare. So
1: value-based healthcare is this idea of, instead of paying doctors and hospitals when we get sick, which is largely what our system is, Doctor gets paid when they do surgery or when you have a problem. Same thing with a hospital. We want to sort of pay them to produce value or try to pay them to keep you well. That becomes a very difficult thing to do. So the idea is really there and it's smart. You know, let's pay doctors for keeping you healthy rather than for treating you for when you get sick. Um, the implementation of it becomes incredibly more complex. Um, so, to a large degree, value based is something we're going to work toward. But it's a ways off. I I, I sort of an acknowledge value based to uh, a little bit like cold fusion. You know, boy, when we get there, it's going to solve a lot of problems. We ain't close to being there. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's down the road quite a bit.
0: Yeah, that, that requires a, a real mindset change in order for us to 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 get around that.
1: Well, it's a it's a mindset change. It's a you know how do you even do it? I mean, again, I I like to, to compare it to cold fusion because. We get the, the basic concept is, is having something that creates more energy than you put into it. Making it happen is really hard. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of problems you have to solve to get there. Um, same thing with value-based. Well, if you're going to pay somebody to keep you healthy, how do you measure health? Right. Who gets that money? How do you pay them? Um, all of that gets really
0: complex um I want to throw a couple things at you real quick just because we got a few more minutes left uh, that, that aren't in the show notes and there are things that um have been proposed as ways to reform our health care that are you know either by political parties or by doctors or, or whatever the case may be I just want to throw these at you real quick sure. and, and ask you why you don't think that they're they're gonna work out well one thing we hear a lot of we heard a lot of it from um Trump when he was running against Biden in the 2020 election, and we've heard it from other conservatives since then, is that we need to have greater access to health savings accounts. Um, Tell me why those are not the end-all be-all for fixing our healthcare system.
1: Um, First of all, health savings accounts have been around for a long time, and they get used very little. Mm -hmm. Um, And healthcare savings accounts really don't function for the vast majority of what that 5% of the population um, that consumes half the cost really needs. It's one thing to save a little bit of money for an average doctor's visit, et cetera, but how on earth is somebody supposed to in a health savings account, save enough money to pay when you get cancer Mm
0: -hmm.
1: or even have a a major surgery? So it's, it's one of those things that sort of sounds good. It's a good sound bullet. It doesn't, it's not controversial, but it's really not, you know, even a rounding error of what will solve our cost problem.
0: And in addition to that, Americans are just bad at saving, either because, yeah. A, they, they can't save. We have a lot of people that do live paycheck to paycheck, particularly right now, uh, or because they don't want to save. We're, we're not very good at that as Americans.
1: Yeah, I mean, think about, you know, if we were really good at it, you know, we wouldn't need Social Security. Everybody would have their own 401k. Right. We have plenty of money to retire with, and that certainly isn't
0: happening. Uh, one of the other ones we hear a lot about and we've talked about a little bit before are health share uh, ministries or health share organizations uh, that aren't regulated in the same way as insurance. What why don't those why is that not the solution?
1: Well, so it's not the solution for a couple of things. So you one you put it, they're not regulated. So any of these entities that people are sort of sharing expenses, which is really kind of insurance. I mean, isn't that the concept of, you know, when I pay into my auto insurance, it's I'm paying in and then, you know, somebody else who cracked up their car is getting that money out and the day when I crack up my car I'll get it out. So it's it's really sort of the concept of insurance. The difference is if one of those things and, and some of it's happened where they get way too many um you know, too many illnesses or sicknesses, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, they can go under and leave everybody else holding the bag. There was a concern, and if the government hadn't handled a, a huge amount of the cost of COVID, when COVID first came, there was a concern that a lot of these ministries would go under. Right? What if the government hadn't stepped in and paid for that COVID care and then instead they hit those, uh, those cost-sharing ministries? The other thing that happens with those is they tend to attract a fairly healthy population. Mm-hmm. So in some respects, what they do when they pull out these healthy people who are generally more healthy than average, um, it makes the people who are getting insurance through their employer, et cetera, it makes that population more severe, which drives up the cost of the insurance. Right. So they're, they're, they've been accused of cherry picking. They don't do it intentionally, it's just the kind of people who tend to pursue those kind mm-hmm. of programs, and that really hurts the rest of the insurance.
0: Uh, and finally, uh, a relatively new one direct primary care. The idea that you pay a subscription to your primary care doctor rather than uh, billing your insurance.
1: Yeah. So there's, these sometimes are called concierge health, et cetera. Um, and, and, uh, I actually am involved with, I have insurance, plus I have a sort of, I pay extra for direct access to a PCP. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think that's a problem in this country. Um, It's like everything else where, you know, if I want, uh, you know, more service, I can pay for it. Um, We're, our free market economy is sort of built on that. But in and of itself, it doesn't solve our our cost problems because they tend to be, you fairly expensive and a huge part of the population couldn't afford it it's it's not a you know a cost solution as much as it is an extra service it's mm-hmm. you know i sort of joke about you know we're in a country where people pay a lot more money for the experience to go into a starbucks and get a cup of coffee when in blind taste tests the vast majority of the population can't tell the difference between starbucks coffee and mcdonald's coffee
0: yep and but that's McDonald's okay. is a dollar.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, and again, we, if we want that, we want that. That's fine.
0: Right. The new book is Clear, Reforming Healthcare to Save the U.S. Economy. It's available now on Amazon.com and you can find links to it in the show notes or at flatlining.net. Just click the books tab. You can find that and flatlining uh, how healthcare could kill the U.S. economy there as well. Ron, thank you so much for sitting down with us, talking about your new book. Uh, We're very excited about it, and uh, we wish you much success with some of these. Great. Thank you. Thanks for checking out this two-part episode of the Flatlining Podcast. You can find Ron's new book, Clear, Reforming Healthcare to Save the U.S. Economy, at flatlining.net. Just click on the Books tab. We'll also have a link to it in the show notes in this program. Next week, we continue our Pulse Check on the Candidates series. We're taking a look at Michigan businessman Perry Johnson and his plan called Two Cents to Save America. Will it work? And what will it do to our health care? We'll tell you about it, so make sure you're subscribed now so you don't miss an episode. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For Ron Howard again, I'm Matthew Handling. Have a great week.